Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I would say it's garbage day at the Rice's, but given the Food for the Poor Radiothon last week, I can say that 341 kids will not be going to the garbage in either Haiti or in Guatemala because of your... Uh, generosity. So we'll leave it at that today. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. We're glad to have you with us. We're going to talk with Randy Frazee. He is the author of What Happens After You Die, A Biblical Guide to Paradise, Hell, and Life After Death. That's coming up later this hour. We're also going to talk with Katie Tubbs. She's a policy analyst for energy and environmental issues at the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. We'll talk about uh, the president's plan to exit the parent climate deal and what that might look like because there are various ways to go about it. Also, Jeremy Dice, if in fact that report is to be believed, Jeremy Dice will join us uh, later in the five o'clock hour. He's deputy general counsel for First Liberty Institute. We'll talk about the impending changes to health and human services contraceptive mandate. There was a memo leaked earlier today, an administrative rule. It's consistent with what the president says uh, he intends to do, but whether or not it is uh, uh, precise, we don't know. We're going to talk about what it, it says, what the president has said during his campaign and what's likely to happen next. And uh, finally, what it means for those who have been waiting since, what, I think 2014 for a resolution to this, uh, this whole issue. Well, it's a story that we're hearing over and over again in various parts of the world. I bring it up because I think it's important for us to remember that while we are in peace and safety, relative peace and safety, there are things happening around the world um, that don't directly impact us, but it's changing the landscape and uh, the things that uh, our country is focused on and things perhaps we ought to be praying about. Nearly a dozen United States citizens were among the 400 people that were wounded when a massive explosion rocked a highly secure diplomatic area in Kabul uh, today, killing at least 90 people, and again, 11 of whom were U.S. citizens. Uh, they were all contract personnel injured in the blast, and one Afghan uh, local guard was reported missing. A senior U.S. official says nine Afghan guards working for a U.S. contracted security company were killed as well. No group had claimed uh, responsibility for the blast, at least not yet. It's believed to be caused by a suicide bombing, though both the Taliban and the Islamic State group have staged large-scale attacks in the Afghan capital in the past. As their uh, areas of occupation are shrinking, they're uh, lashing out to other highly populated area to make their presence known. Uh, The Taliban later Wednesday issued a statement denying any involvement and condemning all attacks against civilians. Um, Surprisingly, Uh, the spokesman for the Taliban said that uh, the Kabul explosion had nothing to do with the Mujahideen of Islamic Emirate, as the Taliban calls itself. Well, the target of the explosion was the Wazir Akbar Khan. It's an area that's not immediately known, but Uh, A spokesperson for the public health ministry said most of the casualties were civilians, including women and children. It was one of the worst attacks Kabul has seen since the drawdown of foreign forces from the country at the end of 2014. And the bombing also raised serious questions about the Afghan government's ability to secure the war-battered nation, something that the United States would desperately like to see happen so that we can withdraw our troops, uh, even if they're in an advisory capacity. Says the uh, deputy spokesman for the interior ministry in Afghanistan. We don't know at this time what was the target of the attack, but most of the casualties are civilians. Germany's foreign minister uh, said employees of the German embassy, uh, embassy rather in Kabul, were wounded and an Afghan security guard was killed. The foreign ministry activated a crisis team to help deal with the aftermath 
Windows were shattered in shops, restaurants, and other buildings up to half a mile from the blast site. There are large numbers of casualties. We don't know how many people were killed or wounded, one eyewitness said earlier in the day. The blast comes days after the massive bomb outside a popular ice cream parlor in central Baghdad and a rush hour car bomb in another downtown area killed at least 31 people in Iraq. The neighborhood is considered Kabul's safest area, so it was clearly targeted to undermine that reputation. Meanwhile, a month ago, the Department of Justice raised eyebrows on the right by continuing to pursue lawsuits defending the Health and Human Services contraception mandate, even though Donald Trump had campaigned against it. A week later, he signed an executive order with representatives of the Little Sisters of the Poor in attendance, promising to protect religious liberty, but which had no legal impact at all on their uh, legal fight for conscience rights. Well, today, the New York Times reports that the Trump administration has taken the first steps to eliminate the basis of the lawsuits and the infringement on religious liberty. Federal officials following through on a pledge by the president have drafted a rule to roll back a federal requirement that many religious employers provide birth control coverage in health insurance plans. Well, the president signaled a change in direction earlier this month when he issued an executive order instructing three cabinet departments to consider amended regulations to address conscience-based objections to the preventative care mandate. End quote. Well, the order cites a section of the Affordable Care Act that refers specifically to preventative services for women, in this case, preventative in terms of uh, pregnancy. Well, the president removed any doubt about his intentions when he signed the executive order that day. Well, at a ceremony in the Rose Garden of the White House, he celebrated the faith of the Little Sisters of the Poor, a 178-year-old religious order that refused to comply with the contraceptive coverage mandate and fought it all the way to the Supreme Court. The president invited them to join him on the dais, announced um, that they sort of just won a lawsuit and told them that their long ordeal will soon be over. Well, it took four months for the Trump administration to take that first step, of course, and almost a month since the executive order. But at least the process is finally underway. Courts have repeatedly ruled that HHS contraception mandate and its uh, ill-considered conscience exemptions infringe on legitimate expressions of religion. The Supreme Court confirmed that in Hobby Lobby and made it clear that the administration, the previous administration, needed to provide more robust and broad exemptions. They decided to stand pat instead, which should have made this a slam dunk for the first day's uh, action. Well, that doesn't mean relief will come immediately or without challenge either, because the rule has been in place for five years. Congress could not roll it back through the Congressional Review Act, which means that HHS Secretary Tom Price has to go through the rulemaking process. That requires a certain amount of time for public comments and a formal process of implementation before a new rule can go into effect. When it does, the lawsuits involving the Little Sisters of the Poor and other employers will get uh, get uh, mooted, if you will, regardless of what career attorneys at the Department of Justice want to do with the case. The sailing may not be entirely smooth to that destination. However, the New York Times reports that advocates for the mandate plan on suing the administration if they can't stop the rule change through the regulatory process using the Affordable Care Act's language as a lever. According to the National Women's Law Center, the statute prohibits any rule that impedes timely access to health care services or creates any unreasonable barriers to the ability of individuals to obtain appropriate medical care. That, however, is likely to be rebutted by evidence available from the uh, from the CDC that shows that Americans had universal access to contraception before the Affordable Care Act. In a 28-year study, the CDC offered a number of reasons for unplanned pregnancies in which a lack of access to contraception didn't even register as a cause. 
Uh, we're going to talk later in the program uh, with Jeremy Dice, who's a deputy general counsel for First Liberty Institute, about that impending change to the HHS contraceptive mandates uh, from a leaked document from the administration. More on that later in the five o'clock hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 15 minutes after four o'clock. We'll be talking with Randy Frizee later this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, three of the nation's intelligence agencies received subpoenas this afternoon issued by the House Intelligence Committee, uh, with each of the three demanding um, documents explicitly naming three top officials of the Obama administration, Susan Rice, who served as the president's uh, White House National Security Advisor, which is a political appointment, former CIA Director John Brennan, and former U.N. Ambassador Samantha Power. The three subpoenas, among a total of seven signed by panel chairman Representative Devin Nunez, um, were served on the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the National Security Agency, and all three explicitly referenced unmasking, a signal that the House panel is investigating and intensifying its investigation into allegations that the Obama-era aides improperly demanded the unmasking of names of associates of President Trump that had appeared in coded form in classified intelligence reports, then leaked the data to news media organizations. In other words, politicizing the intelligence apparatus for the sake of political uh, uh, management. Well, the other four subpoenas were issued at the behest of the committee's ranking Democrat, Representative Adam Schiff, and were said to be uh, duplicative of subpoenas already issued by the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is conducting a parallel probe. Now, these four are focused, sources said, on persistent but as yet unsubstantiated allegations of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government, as well as the case of Michael Flynn. The former White House National Security Advisor was dismissed after three weeks on the job because the White House concluded he'd misled the vice president about private conversations he'd had with Russian ambassador late last year. The other target of these uh, four subpoenas is said to be Michael Cohen, a longtime Trump attorney. Cohen has uh, denied participating in any effort of collusion with the Kremlin. Uh, Flynn, through attorneys, has unsuccessfully sought immunity from prosecution in exchange for congressional testimony. The issuance of the seven subpoenas was first reported by The Wall Street Journal. Well, the inclusion of Power's name on the subpoenas marks the first appearance of the former U.N. ambassador in the controversy surrounding the Obama administration's use of unmasking. Capitol Hill sources say that they are devoting increasingly scrutiny to Power, a former historian and winner of the Pulitzer Prize, uh, who worked as a foreign policy advisor in the Senate office of Barack Obama before joining his administration, because they have uh, come to see her role in the unmasking as larger than previously known and eclipsing those of the other former officials. Officials named. Now, Rice has previously denied any improper activity in her use of unmasking. The allegation is somehow Obama administration officials utilized intelligence for political purposes. That is absolutely uh, false, she told MSNBC in April. President Trump said at that time that he personally believed Rice had committed a crime. None of those named on the subpoenas have been uh, formally accused of wrongdoing. Inquiries placed with uh, representatives of Power and uh, Brennan were not immediately returned. But the investigation continues to move forward. I should say investigations, plural. It's hard to keep uh, one straight from the other. 
Well, what caused the uh, Barack uh, Obama administration to begin investigating the Donald Trump campaign last summer has come into clearer focus following a sting, a string rather of congressional hearings on Russian interference in the presidential election. It was then CIA director John Brennan, a close confidant of the president, who provided the information, what he termed the basis for the FBI to start the counterintelligence investigation last summer. Now, Mr. Brennan, he served on the former president's 2008 presidential campaign and in his White House. Mr. Brennan told the House Intelligence Committee later or rather earlier this month that the intelligence community was uh, picking up tidbits on Trump associates making contacts with Russians. Mr. Brennan did not name either the Russians or the Trump people. He indicated he did not know what was said, but he said he believed the contacts were numerous enough to alert the FBI, which began its probe into Trump associates that uh, same July, according to previous congressional testimony from then FBI Director James Comey. The FBI probe of contacts came the same month the intelligence community fingered Russian agents as orchestrating hacks into DNC computers and providing stolen emails to WikiLeaks. Mr. Brennan, who has not hidden his dislike for Mr. Trump, testified he briefed the investigation's progress to Mr. Obama, who at the time was trying to aid Hillary Clinton in her campaign against the Republican nominee. As Mr. Brennan described his actions to the House committee, and I'm quoting, I wanted to make sure that every information and bit of intelligence that we had was shared with the the Bureau, referring to the FBI, so that they could take it. It was well beyond my mandate as director of CIA to follow on any of those leads that involved U.S. persons. But I made sure that anything that was involving U.S. persons, including anything involving the individuals involved in the Trump campaign, was shared with the Bureau. I was aware of intelligence and information about contacts between Russian officials and U.S. persons that raised concerns in my mind about whether or not those individuals were cooperating with the Russians, either in writing or uh, unwitting uh, fashion, and it served as the basis for the FBI investigation to determine whether such collusion or cooperation occurred Mr. Brennan added, well, 11 months later, there is no official public confirmation that Trump people colluded with the Russians on hacking. When Representative Trey Gowdy of Southern uh, Carolina or South Carolina, rather, the Republican point man in the questioning of Mr. Brennan asked what the Russians and Trump people were talking about. The former top spy said he didn't know. I saw interactions and was unaware of the interaction that, uh, again, raised questions in my mind about what was the true nature of it. But I don't know. I don't have sufficient information to make a determination whether or not such cooperation or complicity or collusion was taking place. But I know that there was a basis to have individuals pull those threads, Mr. Brennan said at the time. It's known that uh, some Trump people had contact with Russians during the campaign when the hacking occurred and some uh, during the transition. Jared Kushner, the White House aide and Mr. Trump's son-in-law, is known to have communicated with Russian Ambassador uh, Kislyak during the transition, as did retired Army General Lieutenant or rather, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. The State Department sponsored a trip by diplomats to the Republican National Convention in July. Uh, Mr. Kislyak was among those who attended. One Trump person known to have public Russian contacts in July was Carter Page. Mr. Page signed on as a low-level volunteer who made TV appearances on Mr. Trump's behalf and offered advice on foreign policy. Mr. Page, who has done business with Russians for years and lived in Moscow in the 2000s as a Merrill Lynch investor bank investment banker, returned last summer to give two talks that were covered by the news media. Mr. Page has told the Washington Times that he played no role in any Russian conspiracy to hack or otherwise interfere with the election. He believes the Trump campaign severed ties with him because of sensational charges in an 
an unverified anti-Trump dossier that surfaced in a smattering of news stories back in November. That dossier, which has since been discredited in large part, was one of the forces influencing the FBI that summer. Well, it goes on. The dossier was financed by a Clinton backer written by a British ex-spy, Christopher Steele. He was hired by the DNC, tied Fusion GPS in Washington. His 35 pages of memos were first circulated in late June. In mid-July, he passed around another memo that made the most sensational charges. Mr. Steele said that Mr. Carter and former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort formed a team to work with the Russians to hack the Democrats. Mr. Page calls the charge preposterous. He told The Times he's never met. Met Mr. Manafort. Also denying the charges was Mr. Manafort, whom the Trump organization fired after reports he received questionable payments from a pro-Russian Ukrainian politician. After Mr. Brennan's uh, appearance uh, late, earlier this month, Mr. Page sent a letter to the House committee. His testimony followed closely the line with the highly defamatory and baseless accusations offered during their regime's final year in office, as well as the months since. Well, if you're having a hard time following all of this, this is the stuff of which the investigation is made, and it's continuing to move forward in several committees. And then, of course, a special prosecutor has also been uh, named. Well, Mr. Steele's dossier said that he met with two Kremlin-connected Russians in Moscow that July, referring to Mr. Manafort. Mr. Page said he has never met the two men. Mr. Brennan has uh, been a harsh critic of Mr. Trump, especially since the election. He took umbrage with Mr. Trump blaming the intelligence community for leaks and his likening it to how the Nazis did business. Mr. Brennan said that Mr. Trump does not understand the threat posed by Russia. And while Mr. Brennan was at the White House, the Obama administration launched a six year reset approach to Moscow, apparently not understanding the threat posed by Russia, and then Secretary of State Clinton standing next to the Russian President Vladimir Putin and urging Americans to do business with Russia. Not to mention the off-mic comment that was made by the President suggesting after the election he'd have more latitude to work with and uh, to the benefit of the Russians. Well, relations soured with Mr. Putin's forces when they invaded uh, Ukraine and to this day, nearly a year after Mr. Brennan alerted the FBI, there's been no public and uh, official confirmation that Trump people coordinated with the Russians on hacking. Senator Dianne Feinstein, California Democrat and Senate Intelligence Committee member, said earlier this month she's seen no evidence of collusion. And the Senate and House Intelligence Committees are both investigating that charge. Last week, the Senate panel asked the Trump presidential campaign for all records related to Russia. And so it goes and goes. And my guess is we'll go for the remainder of uh, President Trump's first term. Up next, we're going to talk with Randy Frizee. He's the author of What Happens After You Die. His mother passed away, and even though he uh, is himself a, a, a believer, found it really difficult to deal with his mother's death. So he did some uh, review of what the scriptures teach and wrote the book for others who, like him, may struggle after a tragedy. The subtitle of the book is A Biblical Guide to Paradise, to Hell, Life After Death. Uh, that's coming up uh, in our next segment. Also in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Katie Tubb. She's a policy analyst for energy and environmental issues at the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. We're going to talk about the uh, president's uh, plan to exit the Paris rather, climate deal and what form that might take. There are several 
uh, several ways to do that or something short of that. And we'll also talk with Jeremy Dice. He's a deputy general counsel of First Liberty Institute. We'll talk about the uh, impending changes to Health and Human Services contraceptive mandate. We spoke about it a little bit earlier, but we'll talk about a leaked memo that gives us some insight into what may happen. That's all coming up in the five o'clock hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 33 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, after the death of his mother, Pastor Randy Frizee began to think about the life after life and aimed to understand one topic that many believers still fear, and that's death. Well, he wrote his latest book, What Happens After You Die, A Biblical Guide to Paradise, Hell, and Life After Death to cope with the loss of his mother, as well as answer the many questions that Christians have about life after death. He said he went on a journey to discover the truth about the afterlife, and he sought that information, that those answers in the scriptures. From heaven to hell and everything in between, he uncovers what is cultural tradition and what is biblical truth when it comes to the fascination with and uh, fear of the afterlife. Well, my guest, Randy Frizee, lives in San Antonio, Texas, with his wife, Roseanne. He is the senior minister at Oak Hills Church, one of the largest churches in America, leading alongside author and pastor Max Lucado, a leader and innovative uh, innovator rather in spiritual formation and biblical community. He is the architect of the Story Church Engagement Campaign. He's also the author of The Heart of the Story, The Connecting Church 2.0, and The Christian Life uh, Profile Assessment. He joins us now to talk about... Uh, the book inspired by the loss of his own mother, What Happens After You Die. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Georgine. Looking forward to talking with you. Now, many of our listeners might be surprised mm-hmm. that someone who is a follower of Christ, who is involved in ministry, mm-hmm. would struggle with the death of a family member. That led you to go deeper into the scriptures to mm-hmm. learn what you probably already knew but needed to understand in perhaps a fresh and deeper way. Can you share a little of the story that led to your writing this book? Mm-hmm. Yes, this is a very deep story, and while I deal with Scripture and try to provide right answers, the listener needs to know that I'm coming from a deep place of of pain and doubt in my own journey that led me to this. Uh, Back in uh, 1999, I had planned to uh, provide a trip to my mother to the beautiful Niagara Falls. First time in my life I could do something for her. She told me she wasn't feeling well in October when I called her, Mm -hmm. and progressively each week she said she wasn't feeling well, and we were going to go to day after Christmas, and she ended up dying three days before I could take her on this once-in-a-lifetime trip. And and her death from pancreatic cancer sent me in an involuntary tailspin of doubt about what actually happens after we die. Actually, Georgine, I really struggled to believe anything happened at all. And for the listeners, here I am, multiple degrees in theology, pastor of a very large church, and here I am doubting about the afterlife. Hopefully, this will give permission to the listeners that doubting is okay as long as you don't stay there. Yeah, absolutely. But the place you went to try to answer your questions and to resolve that doubt was to God's Word, which was the right approach to take in trying to resolve that that conflict in your heart. Now, again, I want to explore a little bit uh, further what it was like for you, what led you to doubt Um, given what you already knew, what you had counseled and and taught others that the scriptures taught, what was the heart of the doubt that you felt at that moment when you're uh, completely covered in grief? 
Yeah, the very first thing was just the sense that I've dealt with death a lot as a pastor, did many funerals, but this was now my Mm. mother. And there was just this sense, I didn't ask for it, there was just this sense, does anything really happen to a person after they die? The idea that our spirit, the real us, disembodies and goes up into the heavens was just a fantastic idea. I didn't feel like there was a lot of evidence of it, and I didn't want this to happen, Georgine, but it did. And the second thing is, I said, even if there is something that goes on, the idea that my spirit is floating around in the clouds, maybe with wings, maybe without wings, uh, singing praise songs, which I love, all for eternity, just actually wasn't that compelling. And and believe it or not, even after all the theological degrees, I had landed on a view of heaven that was somewhat, well, massively short of what the Scripture actually teaches. Mm. That's not all that uncommon, is it? Our culture influences mm. our view of of <clears throat> heaven, the place where everybody's going, and then they're present <clears throat> as angels. So it's not all that uncommon for us to have a, a misunderstanding of what heaven is like and what the Scriptures actually teach, is it? That's exactly right, Georgie. And I think this is one of the biggest surprises and messages of all. If I, as a pastor, could have uh, had this misunderstanding of what the Scripture says, maybe there's something more the listener needs to grab onto, something that is much more fantastic uh, than what we plan. And so theologians, and and, and I'll tell you, pastors are now coming to terms with the fact that there's a welter of folk belief about the afterlife that has left a lot of people singing the uh, Kenny Chesney country song, Everybody want to go to heaven, but nobody want to go right now. That this is something that's better than the alternative, but I'd rather stay here on earth. There's something woefully short in God's design for the afterlife Mm. that we currently hold. Now, when you began to go back to the scriptures, did you intend to write a book or was this just to satisfy what your soul longed for? And that was firm answers uh, as to what God says we can expect at that moment of death. I had no intention to write a book. I had no intention to prepare a sermon. I had no intention of going to Scripture with a denominational axe to grind. I went with the most open heart I have ever gone to Scripture with the intent of, first of all, giving my mom an answer to a question, is Jesus enough? And then to get have some comfort that there was a, going to be an experience with my mother and with God in the future. And here's the deal. I was really, there was a number of scriptures rolling around in my head because of my experience with scripture that sort of I sort of struggled with, and I knew I didn't quite have lined up correctly. And so I went after with no intent to write a book or do a sermon. I was going for the sake of my own soul and the desire to re- experience hope again in my life. So where did you begin? I began, I, first of all, I began with the question that my mom asked in the back of the van as we were driving to the Cleveland Clinic Hospital, where she was from, and she asked the question, is it enough? And I knew what she was referring to. She was referring to a simple prayer of faith where she received Christ at the age of 39. Uh, I had received Christ at the age of 14. I'm now 17 years old. My mom didn't really have a strong connection to a church, and so she was wanting to know, was this transaction of transferring her faith to Christ enough? And so I went, first of all, to scriptures before my mom passed away to give her the assurance that if there's anything else she needed to do before she died, that in fact, I would give her the answer. And I went to the scriptures, really looking at some of these hard passages of scripture that sometimes suggest we might need to give it all away to the poor in order to have eternal life, like Jesus said to the rich young ruler. And I came uh, with the conclusion that in fact, surprisingly, 
amazingly so and comforting so is that salvation is found in no other name but in Jesus. And I whispered to my mom before she passed away, Mom, I double-checked, and it turns out Jesus is enough. I'll see you soon. So that's kind of where I started. Mm, mm. Well, you didn't end it there. Um, you continue to search the scriptures and you write about life in between what happens if I die without Christ, what happens if I die with Christ. And then you have a, a Q&A on life in between. Uh, tell our listeners who don't have the benefit of your book in front of them um, what that first uh, chapter and that first section of the book is about. The big surprise for most Christians today because of, again, movies and country songs, which I love, and uh, even some of the funerals that pastors like me have given in the past leave people to believe that when we die, uh, we go to the final resting place. But in fact, the Bible teaches that when you die, you go to a place in between, not purgatory, but you either go, your spirit either goes to heaven if you have believed in Jesus in this life, or your spirit goes to hell or Hades, which is like a holding place for the final destination of believers. So this idea that heaven, let's talk about that for a moment, is uh, a place where you hear all the time in the songs or the funerals, you know, that you're going to meet St. Peter at the gate, and there's streets of gold and pearly gates, and uh, that Uncle Harry, he's up there golfing with his buddies again. This is absolutely not true. This is not, uh, there will be a time when that is, is all possible, but in the space in between, there's really not that much scripture on it. But what we do get for those who believe in Jesus is that your spirit goes to be with God. It's not so much a place as it is as a person. He's got you. He's holding you. If you don't know uh, God, you're going to a place called Hades, which the Bible can describe as a place of torment. Jude describes it as a place of black darkness. But what we know, it's like sitting on death row waiting for your final punishment. Now, I, I find that when I attend memorial services or funerals, that even when they are Christ-centered, I'm often hearing comments that have no basis in Scripture. Um, why do you think we cling to the fantasy elements of uh, life uh, following death? Um, and, and why is that prevalent, in your view, uh, even in the, the church? I think what happens is that we need to get back uh, to really looking at what the Scripture says and not uh, letting our views of, uh, of, views of life uh, be uh, intermixed with what we're catching in, um, in, in our culture today. And I think sometimes, I know as me as a minister, sometimes I say things, I used to say things at a funeral to bring comfort to the family of the deceased, uh, and they would ask me questions about this or about that, and, and the desire to show mercy. I, I answer the question incorrectly, knowingly, because I want to show mercy. And so therefore, we've gotten really soft on what the Bible actually says. And I knew that when my mom was dying. And, and as a result, I, I went to this place where I was really wanting to know the truth. And I'm hoping some of the listeners would say, you know what, this afterlife is something that none of us are going to avoid. It would be really nice to know the truth, whether it's hard truth or whether it's great truth. I really want to know the truth. I know uh, believers, of course, want to know what the scriptures have to say about uh, the life after this life, if you will. But there's also a fascination in the broader culture about what happens. There are all kinds of programs about apocalyptic events and uh, about hell. And there's one that, that uh, focuses on um, Lucifer himself. Why do you think there's a, a broad fascination with the, the culture outside of the church? 
I think there rightfully is a fascination with it. One of these, because it actually does exist. Uh, you know, even in our world today, uh, if, if there was a special strobe light, I suppose, and you could turn on, I think we would be utterly amazed at the presence of spirit beings, not human beings, but spirit beings, either angels or demons, that are really, are really involved in our world today. The Scriptures teach us very clearly that uh, a believer, once you become a believer, you not only have a guardian angel, but you have a host of them assigned to you. So a number of these things that you thought, man, this can't be a coincidence, there's a really good chance that it wasn't. I think that people in the Church and outside of the Church really sense that there's another dimension, there's something else going on, and rightfully so, they should be pursuing it. What they need to ask is, what is your source of truth? And I would say to to the person outside of the Church, go to the Scriptures, because you're going to find some unbelievable answers uh, for your questions. Now, we're going to take a break, but we'll continue our conversation again. We're talking with Pastor Randy Furzee. His book is titled, What Happens After You Die? A Biblical Guide to Paradise, Hell, and Life After Death. Focusing on what the scripture actually teaches rather than what our impressions might be. 45 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Randy Frazee. He's the author of What Happens After You Die. And he looks at what the scriptures actually teach, not what's just popular. Randy Alcorn, in fact, wrote a uh, forward, uh, clear, warm, personal, transparent, and God-honoring of the book. It's a biblical guide to paradise, hell, and life after death, an area that many of us are curious about. Um, but may know uh, less about than we uh, than we really need to. Now, what advice do you have for those who are afraid of what happens after we die? Uh, great question, because I am in your camp. Uh, one of the things that led me to the study was also the reality that I fear death. And I had a mother who feared death. And one of the most painful things for a son to look at is in the eyes of a mother who was really afraid to die. I admire people that enter into that place with peace. Here's what I would say. If you come to know what the scriptures actually teach, your fear will go down. I don't think it's realistic that we would not fear death. It's called a sting in the Bible. It's called the valley of the shadow of death. So I think it's okay to be apprehensive about the experience. But what will cause you to be to fear less is coming to know two things. What uh, actually is promised in the Bible for those who believe and coming to know the one who made the promise better. Well, let's talk about... Um... Uh, the return of Christ and what that has to say about the death that we experience and that that interim period. Yeah, life in between. Uh, if, if the listener was uh, dialed in on the on the first part of our conversation, life in between is what happens to us the second that we die. If you know Christ, you go to be with the Lord. If you don't know Christ, you go to a holding place called Hades. And what you're doing is you're waiting for the return of Christ, or something significant happens, and that is we receive resurrected bodies. And this is what the Scripture talks about. Uh, When you're reading passages like John chapter 14 about your mansion, uh, you're not really reading about this place that you get right when you die. You're reading about a, a place that becomes a reality once Christ returns. For the person who believes, we receive a resurrected body, and what ends up happening is that that resurrected body uh, becomes uh, dwells on a new earth. And here's the big uh, uh, here's the big news: 
is that heaven at the end of the day is not up in the clouds, but heaven is on a new earth. We are going to experience life on an earth, why we need physical bodies, and not only that, but God is not going to be up there anymore. He's going to be down here walking with us in the cool of the day. Read Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible, and you'll see that God is returning and restoring the vision that was lost then when you read the last two chapters of the Bible. We'll be garden dwellers in a brand new city with God walking on earth. Now that is a vision that I can get excited about. That's a tangible vision where I will actually see my mother again. That's where Uncle Harry will have an opportunity to golf, and there will be work. There will be all kinds of things like we experience now, except without all the junk, without all the sin, without all the fear of death, anger, and bitterness. Now, you also address some of the questions on life forever, like what will we eat? What will our resurrected bodies be like? Will there be pets in heaven? Uh, Some of these may seem like trivial questions to people who... Uh, who don't have those questions, but they are serious questions that many people have about uh, this life forever uh, when Christ returns and we are with him in the place he has prepared for us. Yeah, I absolutely think so. And and here's why I think these questions are important, uh, because the more tangible uh, uh, the vision you have for what is to come, the the more uh, concrete it is, the more uh, the more excited you're going to be about it. So when it comes to uh, will there be pets in heaven, the answer is going to be absolutely yes. Now keep in mind, heaven is not up in the clouds. Heaven is on earth, and both in the book of Genesis, in the creation of the first earth, uh, we see the, the presence of animals, and we're also seeing in the book of Isaiah the the the, the calling out of animals being amongst us. Will Will your particular pet be uh, on the new earth? Uh, I wouldn't pull, pull it past God to pull that off. We don't know the answer to that, but we do know that there will be animals and there will be pets in heaven. And for people who love pets here, sometimes easier to love than us humans, uh, that's a very comforting thing to know. For those of us who are afraid of pets, it's comforting to know that it will be a different environment than the one that we uh, that we have here now. <laughs> one of the things that you um, ask about, and this is a very common question, will we keep our memories or regrets from life now? That sorrow, that burden that we carry sometimes from uh, from remembering, recalling things that either we have done, have been done to us, uh, those burdens. Will we have those memories and regrets? No, we will not. As a, as a matter of fact, uh, it doesn't mean that there won't be any continuity between our life here on this earth in this first body we have and the one yet to come on the new earth. Uh, but what it means, uh, there's two passages of Scripture, and it's referred to in the New Kingdom, and one is where Jesus in the book of Revelation wipes every tear from our eye. The other comes from the book of Isaiah, where it says, See, I will create uh, a new heaven and a new earth. The formal things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. I think that there's just a lot of pain in this life, and I think God is going to create a spiritual amnesia for us for the sake of allowing the new kingdom, our heavenly experience, to be one truly of that. And so those who are listening who have these awful memories that have created tremendous trauma for them, there will come a place in a time where in God's good wisdom, He was going to wipe those from your mind so that you can really Really enter into the new kingdom with joy. In the final section of your book, the sixth chapter, you uh, encourage uh, readers to think about life until then, uh, of life now, um, and you answer some questions that are often commented on. Do we have guardian angels? 
Is it okay to be cremated? And what about people making predictions about the return of Christ? Yeah, these are also very, very important questions. Let me just be brief with them. First of all, related to cremation, uh, here's what I would say. My mother was cremated. I think that it's completely fine to be cremated. The reality is there are many martyrs of the faith who were burned at the stake, and what we know now about the recreation of our bodies, uh, which will be very different than the ones we have now, God has the mathematical formula for our DNA. He can recreate us without having a physical body, which ultimately decays anyhow. But if you have a conviction that you don't want to be cremated, that somehow God is honored, the book of Corinthians tells us you hold that conviction and be buried. But if for those who have been cremated or want to be cremated, I don't see why that is a theological problem at all. You also write about life after death and near-death experiences, which has captured the imagination mm-hmm. of many in our culture. Yes. Now, and again, I want the listener to keep in mind that I am completely writing this book from what does the Bible say. Mm-hmm. Second, I'm not going to uh, discount a person's experience, but when I look for near-death experiences in the Bible, uh, and that is where a person dies sort of temporarily, their heart starts be- stops beating, and they have this encounter, I didn't find anything in the Bible like that. And so therefore, I don't know that they're true. We have two experiences. One is with Stephen, uh, where he ex- he's, he's, he's getting ready to be stoned to death, and he sees the heavens open up and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, inviting him. He didn't die yet, but there was this amazing acknowledgement that, that, that God was there, gave him a vision. The second one is Paul. He didn't near, nearly die, but he got elevated to the third heaven, he said, and he saw a vision of heaven, not the new earth, but of heaven. But it's interesting, he said he, he nor anyone else is permitted to tell what they saw. So I do find the near-death experiences to be fascinating, and I would say if they draw a person closer to God or to receive God, then I'm all for them. But the Bible doesn't really talk about them, but it does talk about someone who didn't nearly die, but someone who actually died and stayed dead for three days and rose again on the third day. That is the death experience that we should put our hope on. Absolutely. The book is titled What Happens After You Die. My guest is uh, Randy Frazee, and you cover all of the important highlights that come to mind when people are either anticipating death or perhaps fearful of it, want to know what the scripture actually teaches, and you cover it very well. You also provide discussion questions for small groups so that if uh, if a group of people needs to uh, to try to work through what the scriptures teaches, you have an outline for them to do that in a way that's constructive and edifying. Yes, I do. Matter of fact, I would suggest to the listener that this is a book you can read on your own, but uh, but this is the, this is a book that's important enough to process it out with other people. And when you do, get in a group where where you can talk about your fears and doubts. That's what I did as a pastor, and that's what I want to give permission to the listeners. It's okay to doubt, because when you doubt, it'll give you hunger for the truth, and when you discover the truth, Jesus said, it will truly set you free. Well, Pastor, thank you so much for talking with us. The book, once again, is What Happens After You Die, A Biblical Guide to Paradise, Hell, and Life After Death. Randy Frizee, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me, Georgine. The book, by the way, is uh, published by Thomas Nelson. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. We're going to talk with Katie Tubb this hour. She's a policy analyst for energy and environmental issues at the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, plan to exit the Paris climate deal. That's a question mark at the end of that. That's why I raised my voice. It's not clear 
whether or how or if that's going to happen. We'll talk with Katie Tubb about it. And Jeremy Dice will join us also in the five o'clock hour. He's deputy general counsel of First Liberty Institute. They represent uh, uh, believers for religious liberty issues. We're going to talk about the uh, the planned changes to health and human services contraceptive mandate. We talked a little bit about that at the first of the program. We're going to take a look at what was leaked earlier today that uh, indicates uh, the intention of the Ob- the uh, Trump administration, and we'll see what actually happens, but we'll uh, take a look at what was actually said in this leaked document, which may have been malicious. It may have been a trial balloon. We don't know. Uh, meanwhile, in the news, since winning a House majority in 2010, congressional Republicans have asked for any increase in the nation's borrowing limit to be offset, at least in part, by spending cuts. Well, President Obama denied that ambition, but it's different um, now that Republicans control the presidency in both houses of Congress. It's different, but it may not be much easier, as we've seen. Or Last week, uh, Treasury Secretary Stephen uh, Munchen, he indicated a preference for passage of a clean bill that raises the debt ceiling from $19.81 trillion without necessitating cuts and before Congress leaves for its August recess. I urge you to raise the debt limit before you leave for the summer, he said. Well, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi and other Democrat leaders also support such a clean increase in the debt ceiling without attaching it to other matters. But Republicans likely aren't unified on how to raise the debt limit. They're not unified on many things or anything we can put our fingers on at this point. The responsible thing to do is address the debt ceiling early and avoid a last minute crisis. That's a quote from Representative Jim Jordan, who is a Republican and a member of and former chairman of the conservative House Freedom Caucus. Any debt limit increase should be paired with spending cuts to address our debt, he said. The federal government has a spending problem, and it's time that Congress took meaningful steps toward getting it under control. Now, the debt ceiling marks the federal government's ability to continue borrowing money to pay for its spending. Raising that limit technically isn't new spending, but it rarely takes the government long to reach that new limit, as we've seen year after year. Well, the House Freedom Caucus, a group of about three dozen conservatives, issued a statement last week in support of raising the debt limit by August. But the caucus opposed doing so without conditions and demanded any increase by uh, be paired with cutting the budget where necessary, capping where able and working to balance in the near future. End quote. Well, raising the debt ceiling should include budget savings, but shouldn't mean threatening to default on paying the nation's debt. That's a quote from Maya McGinnis, the president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Government, a nonpartisan fiscal watchdog group. There should not be a talk of allowing the country to default. That's not a credible threat nor a legitimate strategy, she went on to say. But it does make sense to include savings and debt reduction as part of any package to increase the debt ceiling. Now, what typically happens is you just raise the debt ceiling and that's about it. There are no cuts, no strategy to balance that out. And... Um, Your grandchildren, great-grandchildren, will just have to deal with it. Well, the August recess is earlier than Congress had planned for raising the nation's borrowing limit, but it is a reasonable amount of time in which Congress can move. That's what McGinnis said. Such savings should be consistent with a budget policy Congress decides on, which she says she hopes will be reached by that point. Well, as of last week, the Treasury Department measured the national debt at $19.8 trillion, right at the limit. The debt limit came back into effect March the 15th after it was suspended temporarily by a 2015 agreement between Congress and Obama. 
President Trump's budget proposal estimated that the national debt will increase to $21 trillion by the end of 2018, $24.6 trillion by 2027. Under Obama, the debt ceiling from, uh, increased rather from $10.6 trillion upon his inauguration in 2009 to $19.94 trillion when he left office in January of 2017. President Trump is saying, hey, $21 trillion by the end of 2018 and all the way up to nearly $25 trillion by 2027. Policies in the Trump budget proposal, such as imposing work requirements for recipients of Medicaid and food stamps, could be included in the package, raising the debt ceiling, said uh, Romina Abacha. She's a federal government expert who is um, deputy director of the Thomas Rowe Institute for Economic Policy. She noted that public, uh, the public doesn't support simply increasing the borrowing limit without fiscally responsible measures. Somehow we never get to the other half of that equation, however. A clean debt ceiling increases bad optics, bad politics, and bad policy, she points out. The debt ceiling can be a key legislative tool for spending cuts in the future and to rein in spending and deficits. If not now, when? Ever? Well, Mike Mulvaney, director of the White House Office of Management and Budget, opposed raising the debt ceiling without achieving savings when he was a House member from South Carolina. He also was part of the House Freedom Caucus. White House officials last week had a listening session with uh, conservative groups and members of Congress about raising the debt ceiling. Uh, Testifying before the House Ways and Means Committee last week, Munchen replied, that is my preference when asked about raising that debt ceiling without conditions, referring to the Trump administration. The Treasury Secretary also told the committee, we are very concerned that the debt has gone from $10 trillion to $20 trillion over the last eight years. We believe that the most important issue is economic growth. I urge you to raise the debt limit before you leave for the summer. We can all discuss how we can uh, cut spending in the future and how we deal with the budgets going forward. But it is absolutely critical that where we spend the money, that we keep the credit of the United States as the most critical issue. It is the reserve currency of the world, and we need to make sure we raise our debt ceiling to pay our debts. So chances are we will raise the debt ceiling. That's almost a certainty. What isn't certain is if it will ever be offset uh, by cuts to keep the deficit from continuing to rise. Merry Christmas and happy birthday to future generations. Well, Democrats are banking on Trump fatigue and discontent with the GOP-led Congress as they vow to compete in 79 House races next year. But the ambitious plan to retake the chamber will also require a pretty big dose of cash. Capitol Hill Republicans' struggles with Obamacare reform and the flood of negative news about the White House may give the Democrats an opening to win back the House, needing to capture at least 24 net seats in 2018 to take the House. Party leaders identified 59 potentially competitive races in January and 20 more last week. No district is off the table. That's a quote from New Mexico Representative Ben Ray Luan, co-chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, in a press conference last week. He said the group has raised more money online so far this year than in all of 2015, which, of course, was a couple of years ago. But he added, I know Republicans will outraise us. Well, we'll have to wait and see. Jesse Hunt, who's a national spokesman for the Republican National Congressional Committee on Tuesday, said it appears House Democrats haven't given up on the old shotgun approach, throwing out races to see which one sticks and is the same strategy that's kept them in the minority since 2010. Well, Republicans have controlled the Senate since 2014 and won control of the House seven years ago in the same kind of midterm wave election Democrats are hoping to ride next year. Democrats missed a rare opportunity last year to retake the Senate, considering Republicans 
had to uh, defend two dozen Senate seats seeking re-election. But they've wasted no time this year trying to capitalize on the voter resentment for Trump's upset victory over Democrat Hillary Clinton, holding town hall events in which they questioned Trump's leadership and argued that millions of Americans will lose their health insurance under Republicans' Obamacare repeal and replace efforts. Uh, Joe Crowley, a representative from New York who leads the uh, Democrat organization, said at the press conference on Capitol Hill that Dems are eyeing even more seats. The number in play is really well over 80. So the face-off is going to be intense. What happens? Well, we'll just have to uh, wait and see. But that's coming sooner than you might imagine, although I think we're all pretty fatigued from the last election. But they just keep, like, death and taxes Coming back around. Well, safe and secure, that's the kind of phrase that you use for the defined benefit pensions that many people, at least in the old days, <laughs> uh, used to enjoy. They're supposed to be safe and secure, but for many Americans, these defined benefit pensions have been a dream come true that's fading. After a few decades of labor, they've retired in their 50s, early 60s with a comfortable pension, income for life. Oh, those were the good old days. But that dream come true is, well, too good to last. Across the country, many private and public pension plans are on the brink of failure. They promise trillions of dollars in benefits without socking away enough money to pay for them. So Oregon and PERS is not alone in its dilemma. Pensioners could lose some or all of their expected benefits, and taxpayers would be forced to pony up or cover most public pensions' unfunded promises, maybe even some private ones. It's a bad scenario for retirees and taxpayers alike, particularly because retirees are taxpayers as well as others. The coming pension tsunami, as many are uh, calling it, didn't arise out of the blue. The defined benefit pension system was inherently flawed from the beginning. Defined benefit plans were established to insulate workers from risk, the risk of not saving enough, not earning high enough investment returns, and outliving one's savings. But planning for retirement is inherently risky business, and there's no way around that. Even if workers were forced to set aside a seemingly prudent amount of retirement, there's always the chance that they'll live too long or that their savings won't earn enough to keep up with the rising cost of living. That holds true whether it's a worker or an employer in, change, in charge rather, of that planning. So the question becomes, who's better equipped to manage retirement savings? Workers themselves, employers, or politicians? Workers have a lot more skin in the game, and if they don't set aside enough savings for retirement, it's their own financial future on the line. It doesn't necessarily mean it works very well, but that's a fact. Unions and politicians who manage the majority of defined benefit pensions, however, have conflicted interests. They have little to lose and much to gain from making wildly generous promises without making the investments to back them up. And lacks to non-existent federal pension regulations certainly don't bolster their dependability. Now, when multi-employers or union pension plans fail to set aside enough to pay promised benefits, they either seek a taxpayer bailout as the United Mine Workers of America has done, or become insolvent, turning the mess over to the government-run Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. Neither one very good options. When that happens, the uh, cuts, uh, the Pension Benefit Fund cuts most workers' pensions, but pays the union trustees who oversaw the plan's demise to keep managing the defunct plans. So again, they have very little to lose. When state or local governments don't properly fund pension plans, their taxpayers are on the hook to make up the difference. They may not have the political courage to do what's necessary to fund those plans, but they always have a backup. That's, well, you, the taxpayer. According to the American Legislative Exchange Council, the current $5.6 trillion in unfunded state and local pension promises amount to $17,427 for every man, woman, and child 
in America. So if you could just cough that up, we'd get it covered. So who should manage it? You, the politicians, the employers. It's a big question, and there's a big deficit to cover those pensions. More in the future. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Katie Tubb, a policy analyst. We're going to talk about the Paris climate deal. So what's up and what's next? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a senior White House official has said that the president is planning to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement. And uh, joining us to talk more about that, whether or not we know for certain what form that's going to take, is Katie Tubb. She's a policy analyst for energy and environmental issues in the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, we're hearing a lot of uh, talk about the uh, White House pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, but there are a variety of things that could be done. Do we have any idea of what, what that statement means, that he's pulling out of the, the Paris Climate Agreement, and what form that's likely to take? Well, right now, there's been a lot of talk, but uh, no formal statement from the Trump administration. Uh, President Trump tweeted earlier this week that he would announce his decision by the end of this week. Uh but as far as that, uh, everything is rumors. What I'm hearing is uh, he's likely to pull out, uh, but we won't know till we get the final final tweet, final formal uh, opinion from the Trump administration. Now, one of your colleagues suggested that the president will soon issue an executive order calling on the EPA to rescind the Clean Power Plan, which is a, a key component of the, the, the previous administration's Paris Climate Agreement. Now, that falls short of withdrawing, but it, it is an element of it. Uh, how much credibility do you think that uh, possibility uh, has? That's correct. And in fact, um, the Trump administration has done that. So the Clean Power Plan is back with the EPA to either revise, rescind, or repeal. Uh, and the um, court case involving the Clean Power Plan has been stayed for the moment until the Trump administration uh, comes up with a new form of the Clean Power Plan or pulls it uh, off altogether. So one of the biggest contributors to the Paris Protocol, the Clean Power Plan, has already been pulled off the table. So that's uh, somewhat encouraging. Now, reports have also surfaced that top officials in the uh, Trump administration are divided on whether to pull out of the uh, Paris Protocol. But if our listeners recall, uh, the president or candidate Trump made some campaign promises to withdraw not just from from Paris, but from the entire United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Can you explain the the, uh, difference between the two and what that would mean if, in fact, he keeps that campaign promise? Absolutely. So. Uh, Paris is a child, I, could, I should say, of the UNFCCC, the UN Framework uh, Convention on Climate Change. If President Trump decides to uh, pull the United States out of Paris, that process takes four years, three years for the agreement to uh, be in place and a year to withdraw. Uh, if he decides to pull out of the UNFCCC, the parent agreement, um, that process takes a year. And if the United States goes down that route, it's presumed that they are also out of the Paris Protocol. So Paris is a four-year process that still keeps us in the UNFCCC. Uh, the UNFCC uh, is a one-year process that gets us out of everything. Now, explain a little bit about the global warming regulations for new and existing power plants, fuel efficiency, uh, methane regulations, some of the elements of the uh, Paris Agreement. 
that have uh, caused many to suggest that this would undermine our uh, productivity and certainly our economy. Um, absolutely. So President Obama, when he signed on to the Paris Protocol, committed the United States to greenhouse gas emission reductions of 26 to 28 uh, percent below 2005 levels by the year 2025. And what makes up that 26 to 28 percent are these regulations that you just listed, the clean power plants, um, regulations on new and existing power plants, uh, and fuel efficiency standards, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, other standards such as uh, methane reductions on hydraulic fracturing processes. And what, the problem with a lot of these is it's, they're extremely expensive, not just for the companies that have to comply, but with anyone who uses uh, energy down the road. One of the blessings and curses of energy is that it's a master resource. It, if, if the price of energy increases, everything else increases, every good and service, because we all depend on energy. So these regulations uh, are extremely expensive um, across the board, and we're talking about $2.5 trillion in GDP loss by 2035 if we go forward with these. Uh, and in contrast, they don't have a lot of environmental impact. They don't uh, reduce global temperatures by any measurable uh, degree. Well, that's the important part. I mean, if uh, if you could demonstrate that this would uh, make a dramatic difference, maybe a case could be made aside from the economic impact. But uh, the, as your colleague points out, the high price tag of Paris will generate meaningless climate benefits. So the trade-off doesn't really make it um, uh, make it profitable uh, in any measurable way. Now, what about uh, developing countries and the impact uh, that this is likely to have for them as they are attempting to emerge from uh, poverty status into the 21st century? I think that's a great point. There are uh, roughly 1.3 billion, with a B, people who do not have access to electricity. Uh, you think about our daily lives in the United States. Everything we do involves some kind of switch, whether it's our cell phones or the lights in our house, the lights in our offices, our heating, uh, plumbing. Everything requires electricity. Uh, and these people don't have access to that basic uh, resource. And unfortunately, a lot of what is underlying things like the Paris Protocol are uh, initiatives to block some of the most affordable and reliable sources of energy, namely uh, fossil fuels like coal and oil. Now, there are uh, responsible ways to use those resources, uh, but unfortunately, that's not much of an option with agreements like the Paris Protocol. And in the process, they're denying people access to energy that provides opportunity and healthier lives. Now, one of the arguments that's being made to stay in the Paris framework is uh, that it would have broad and damaging diplomatic ramifications. The United States would no longer have a place at the table. Um, is it going to be costly in that way if the United States withdraws, um, as uh, the Trump administration seems to suggest they intend to? Um, I have a hard time buying that argument. The United States has pulled out of international agreements like this before. Uh, the Kyoto Agreement, no less, is an example, and certainly there was um, international angst uh, in the immediate wake of that decision, uh, but the world moved on, and the United States moved on, and um, we're, we're an important player in the international uh, scheme of things, so I don't see 
the Paris Protocol being the linchpin in all of our uh, interactions with the international community. Now, some are suggesting that uh, it would require Senate uh, ratification uh, if the president were to withdraw. Uh, But there is president under a previous administration in which a treaty uh, was withdrawn or the United States withdrew from a treaty under the Bush administration. Correct. And, you know, President Obama signed the U.S. up for the Paris Protocol unilaterally. It can be done undone unilaterally. Uh, you know, President Obama took the interpretation that what he was doing was an executive agreement rather than a treaty. Uh, but in either case, the president has the authority to um, pull back those agreements without the consent of the Senate. Well, we'll certainly be watching and listening intently over the next few days, waiting to hear from the administration as to what they intend to do. Katie Tubb, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me on. Appreciate it. Katie Tubb is a policy analyst for energy and environmental issues and the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Jeremy Dice. He's a deputy general counsel of First Liberty Institute. Trump's impending changes to health and human services contraceptive mandate uh, are reason for rejoicing among some of their clients. We'll talk more about that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, after litigating for nearly three years, First Liberty Institute's religious ministry clients look forward to receiving relief from the crippling penalties imposed by the Health and Human Services contraceptive mandate that was found in Obamacare. That's thanks to new administrative rules drafted by the Trump administration to protect the conscience of religious ministries nationwide and leaked earlier today. Well, here to talk with us about that is Jeremy Dice. He's Deputy General Counsel of First Liberty Institute. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, my understanding is there has been some uh, information leaked earlier today. What is it that we have learned from this leak, and how reliable is that? Well, I I think it can be fairly reliable. Of course, this is a leak, so it's not a final proposed anything yet, but it it sure has all the hallmarks of something that is in its more or less final form. And the basic thing that we learn from this leak or, or, or this proposed interim final rule is that uh, at the end of the day, uh, religious liberty clients across the country that have been litigating this issue on the, everybody will remember the contraceptive mandate from so many years ago involving the Little Sisters of the Poor and all that. Mm-hmm. What this administration is doing is, is doing exactly what all those litigants, including our clients, have asked for. They're exempting them from having to comply with the uh, contraceptive mandate. That's a that's a huge victory for for all religious liberty clients, especially ours who've been litigating this and frankly just stuck in kind of no man's land for the last three plus years. And this is certainly consistent with what the Trump administration has announced earlier: an intent to adopt uh, an important new policy. So this, whether it was maliciously leaked or it was a trial balloon, is consistent with what we've heard the administration say. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, too, to see the uh, the actual language of the uh, the order. I mean, it's 120-some pages, so it takes a while to go through. But as I, as I went through it, uh, the administration is not doing away with the contraceptive mandate. That still is there. Uh, however, there is a new section added to these regulations that provide a, uh, a significant uh, list of people who are uh, qualified for an exemption. So if you have a religious objection to providing these contraceptives or, or abortifacients or what have you under this, this mandate, uh, then if you run a nonprofit organization, you can request an exemption. If you are 
part of a closely held for-profit company like Hobby Lobby was, you can request an exemption. If you are a for-profit publicly traded company that uh, that holds a religious objection to providing this material, you can uh, you qualify for the exemption. And it goes on down the list of several different uh, qualities that would would merit this exemption. So this is a very broad, as I can read it, a very broad exemption that is in place to protect the very important conscience rights of religious individuals and organizations across the country. Now, you may not be able to answer this question, but you mentioned several times that you can apply for an exemption. Do you know what uh, what would be required for that exemption to be accepted, or is the application sufficient to exempt you from that mandate? Well, I think all that has to ha- has to happen under this is that the company or the organization or the individual just simply informs their insurance provider, hey, we don't want these as a part of our plan. And now the plan is freed up to be able to not make that a part of it. See, before, under the old ex- uh, uh, structure, the, the insurance companies, regardless of what your beliefs were, or even in some cases as we experienced, regardless of whether or not you received an injunction by a federal judge, they still had a requirement by the, the law to provide those as a part of their health care plans. Now those plans are actually exempt from having to have those things in there by virtue of the fact that you as the actual uh, uh, plan holder uh, have an objection to them. So it's a dramatic change from, from the previous administration that was just absolutely intent on putting it in there. And, and one thing more, just to kind of belabor the point mm-hmm. perhaps, but the, um, the, the the memo goes into a long detail about whether or not this is even something that is a compelling interest for the government to be regulating. Uh, the, the, the government basically said, hey, look, we actually don't have the authority as a government to order people to have this, this uh, medication. It's something that we can suggest and make a, as a good point, but it's not something that you're uh, constitutionally entitled to, nor congressionally or through statute entitled to. Uh, so th- it's a very interesting uh, document to read through, and we'll see what the final interim rule actually uh, says in its final form when it is uh, released, we hope, pretty soon. Now, for those who haven't been following this as closely, uh, you first, um, these religious ministries first filed suit seeking relief from the Obama administration's uh, contraceptive mandate clear in October of 2014, and you've been waiting for a resolution uh, on appeal since the spring of 2015. So this is a long time coming. Yeah, and not only that, but you'll recall that after the Little Sisters of the Poor case went to the Supreme Court of the United States, the, the justices basically told the DOJ at that time under President Obama, hey, y'all are pretty close to, to a resolution on this issue. Sit down and figure it out. Uh, and it took, oh, I don't know, six or seven months for the Obama administration to kind of begin to sit down. And when they ultimately were on the way out the door, they said, yeah, we're not going to change anything. We're, we're happy with what we have right now. Uh, and, and so not only did we sit on appeal for multiple months at the, uh, for us at the 11th Circuit and the 5th Circuit, uh, uh, respectively, uh, we also waited and waited for the Department of Justice to do something. Meanwhile, we're just sitting there kind of twiddling our thumbs, having our, our clients uh, are having their religious liberty violated left and right for you know three and a half plus years now. Uh, so it's a welcome relief to see a president who is dedicated to, uh, to, to providing that relief. Now, if and when these new uh, interim rules are adopted, um, what remains for the court to do? We hope that the courts will simply, the circuit court or the courts of appeal will simply dismiss the government's appeals in these matters. Remember, we won at the district courts in both of these cases. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we, we have victory down there. But we just need to have those appeals dismissed and then uh, have a remand issued to the district courts to order that final judgment be, uh, be put together. So, uh, you know, it kind of wraps things up real quick after that. Mm. What will this mean for your clients? 
Well, you know, it, it'll for one thing, it'll take away this kind of black cloud that's been hanging mm-hmm. over their head for three and a half years now, and the uncertainty that comes with all that. It's hard to plan for a business when you're not sure exactly what one of your key benefits is going to be in the future, or what in, uh, impact it's going to have on you going forward. So that, that's a good thing, uh, but most especially, it, it is uh, protecting their their ability to simply do their job without fe- and pursue their mission without fear of their government punishing them through a crippling fine or penalty for uh, for not providing these these services that are against their convictions. Now, First Liberty Institute is the largest legal organization in the country. You guys are dedicated to uh, defending religious freedom for all Americans. That's your exclusive mandate. For listeners who may feel that they uh, need to speak with someone to determine whether or not uh, a situation merits legal attention, what's the best way for them to find out more and to be in touch with you? Yeah, definitely have them go to firstliberty.org as a first stop and, and review all of our cases, including this one. But you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook and other places to make sure that you're staying up to date on the latest matters that we're covering. Well, and let me just say how much I appreciate uh, the work that you do in providing this kind of help and resource, this legal counsel and representation to organizations all across the country. We all benefit by what you're doing, so I appreciate it very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate mm-hmm. it. Again, uh, Jeremy Dice is the Deputy General Counsel of First Liberty Institute, uh, talking about Trump's um, uh, pending changes to Health and Human Services contraceptive mandate, which we expect will be released at any time now. Uh, as he mentioned, the administrative rules drafted by the administration to protect the conscience of religious ministries nationwide uh, were leaked earlier today. Now, as I mentioned, sometimes those leaks are malicious. Uh, sometimes they're a trial balloon. They're done uh, for a, a different sort of purpose. We don't know what the case is here, uh, but at least it seems consistent with what the administration clearly announced when it announced its intent to adopt an important new policy for religious ministries across the country. So we'll wait and see when the actual administrative rules uh, are made public, and we'll certainly follow that uh, story and comment when that happens uh, sooner rather than later, it would appear at this point. Now, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we return, I want to bring you the latest regarding the uh, uh, event that was scheduled for this Sunday, the group that uh, Mayor Wheeler attempted to prevent having access to the federal property, the Terry Shrunk Plaza. Uh, the feds have ruled on that. We'll let you know the latest, why he was concerned, and, and some things that we as uh, believers need to know about, we need to be praying about, concerned about, and and uh, certainly being salt and light in our community will be a part of that solution. So that's coming up in our next segment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the uh, mayor of the city of Portland, Ted Wheeler, had pled with the federal government to revoke the permit for the pro-Trump rally. Despite that fact, the federal government said they will not revoke that permit for the event taking place this Sunday and a few uh, days following. Well, the federal agency that issued the permit for the uh, pro-Trump free speech rally in Portland planned for Sunday will not revoke that permit. Uh, Wheeler made the request in the wake of the double murder of two heroes protecting teens from racist and Islamophobic uh, vitriol on the MAX train. Uh, the United States General Services Administration announced today, this morning in fact, its decision to allow the event to continue, saying in a statement, since the permit was lawfully obtained to assemble at this federal location, GSA has no basis to revoke the permit. Now the organizer of the event says that they have nothing to do with white supremacists or any of the other groups fomenting this kind of violence. The mayor suggests otherwise and that they 
there is likely to be a face-off between that group and another group from the left uh, that uh, have been facing off for some time now in the uh, Portland metro area. Antifa is the name of that group and the other being labeled by the mayor as alt-right. Well, the agency oversees the Terry Shrunk Plaza property across from Portland City Hall, where the rally is set to take place. The organizers of the event on Sunday, Vancouver neighbor, uh, native rather Joey Gibson, says that he plans to continue the uh, demonstration with or without a permit. He applied for the permit on the 10th of this month and received approval for his demonstration on the 15th. It doesn't matter what they do, Gibson says, we'll be down there regardless. He added that revoking the permit would have posed a constitutional issue. Uh, the, the mayor, rather, called on the federal agency to immediately revoke the permit for Sunday's demonstration and not to issue it for an anti-Muslim event scheduled for June the 10th. Now, that event is uh, designed to oppose Sharia law. Now, you could define that as anti-Muslim. I'm not sure it quite fits in that box. But nonetheless, that is apparently the focus of it. Uh, the non-Sharia demonstration organizer, Scott Pressler, he announced uh, Wednesday that he would cancel the event, saying that Wheeler's inflammatory request to cancel protests could endanger people who might attend. The mayor's uh, request drew criticism from First Amendment advocates, the American Civil Liberties Union, and local conservative leaders. I am firm, uh, the, uh, the Fed's, uh, Wheeler said of the Fed's decision uh, this morning, I am a firm supporter of the First Amendment, no matter the views expressed. Well, apparently not, since these views he did not want expressed in Portland. He went on to say, I believe we had a case to make about the threat to public safety posed by this rally uh, at this place and at this time. Now, he has never made such a bold statement uh, regarding other events that have taken place in the Portland area that were uh, violent in nature, destroying property. But he suddenly has found a backbone to mention it in this one. I'm not sure I like the idea of the rally, but the First Amendment does not make distinctions as the mayor was apparently prepared to. Well, the mayor said it's his job to protect public safety. And again, he's finally found uh, his job description that emphasizes public safety, where in the past with uh, previous demonstrations where anarchists a run uh, ran amok and destroyed property. Uh, that was not so much the case. He urged organizers to exercise common sense and to help us keep the peace. Local and federal law enforcement will be present, he said. I urge everyone participating to reject violence. Wheeler said our city has seen enough. It certainly has seen enough with the events that took place like last Friday and certainly in the weeks before when we had violent protests um, uh, that were political in nature. We'll see what happens this time around. Let's uh, let's hope for and pray for the best. Well, there has been some unease regarding white supremacy in the Portland metro area. Now, for many in our community, this is a new challenge for those of us who are African-American who have been in Portland for a short or for a long time. This has been a longstanding concern. But uh, news media outlets here in the Portland metro area are now saying uh, more broadly that there's unease about white supremacist activity in Portland. It's deepened after the fatal stabbing of the two men this past week. The attack aboard a light rail uh, happened on Friday, the first day of Ramadan, the holiest time of the year for Muslims. Now, whether or not that was by design, we don't know. But we do know the person responsible uh, was uh, highlighting and focusing on two women he thought to be. Um, Muslim. One was wearing a hijab. The other one was African-American. He might have assumed that, but he was also making uh, racial statements about her, the African-American, apart from uh, um, being Muslim. Well, the death stunned the city, but also underscored the nervousness about recent events, including a series of apparent hate crimes in the region, continuous public rallies that have shut down 
uh, have, have drawn rather national attention. Now, not all of those had anything to do with white supremacy. Many of them just represented issues on the left. But the Pacific Northwest has a long and violent history of white supremacist and other racist activities, despite its more recent reputation for being one of the nation's most social liberal regions. Now, the idea that uh, Portland is so liberal supersedes this uh, or covers up this uh, this dark element, but it certainly has been present from uh, the very beginning in this uh, part of the country and spreads beyond. Now, we know that the individual who's responsible for this uh, tragedy last Friday has self-described himself as something other than what many people wanted to paint him early on as a Trump supporter, motivated and connected with that effort. We now know, again, from his own admission that that is not the case, but nonetheless, um, there is concern about this growing clash, not only but among white supremacists, but other groups that oppose them. And if you haven't been made aware, these uh, groups have been brawling across this, the uh, the city for some time. You have the white supremacists and you have the masked leftists uh, identified as uh, as um, uh, the clown block or as what do they uh, call themselves? And the, the name is uh, Antifa is escaping me. All of that to say that we as as the followers of Christ have a tremendous opportunity and responsibility to have some impact on our community. And we're not uh, most of us aren't in law enforcement. We're not in public policy positions, but we do have conversations in our own neighborhoods and our places of business. And I just want to encourage you to seize every opportunity to express a Christian worldview with regard to differences among us. Now, as a Christian, we are not Muslims, but we do not oppose Muslims and and uh, and advocate for violence. Uh, we do not um, advocate for mistreating people with whom we disagree. Now, we're seeing a lot of that coming from various quarters, not just from the right, but from the left as well. But we need to distinguish ourselves as being different. We need to distinguish ourselves by having the kind of character that Christ has in responding to the violence and the disruption and the anger and vitriol. Uh, in our community. Uh, many are surprised by it. It's been going on for far longer than most people are aware of. But again, whenever there is uh, this kind of upheaval, I see it as an opportunity uh, for us to demonstrate the love of Christ in tangible ways that our communication should be uh, tinged with uh, with grace. Uh, we should speak the truth, but to do it in love so that we can have an impact on our community uh, that will be uh, a benefit and a blessing rather than uh, a curse. So let's pray and let's um, let's act right. <laughs> let's speak right, if I can put it um, in such a crude way. Well, coming up tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with David Chatwick. He is the author of Superficial to Significant, What It Means to Become Great in God's Eyes. So I hope you can join us. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.